This is Judaism 101.9 with Rabbi Michael Katz of Elovo. Hi, and a good afternoon to you. Wonderful to be with you back in your company here, um, especially this afternoon as the mood changes. Things swing around, and perhaps that is something that we're going to address. How do we do that? You know, we've been listening to uh, news bulletins with uh, all sorts of phrases. I think that we can term this radical transformation. There is radical transformation that happens from the nine days immediately afterwards. And here at midday today, we went from the period of nine days, the darkness, the difficulties, the problems, the issues, into a period of time which is all about consolation. It's all about rectifying the wrongs of the past. It's all about fixing things up. And it's not without a very, very good reason, and that is that as we part from the nine days and Tisha B'Av, so we move towards Rosh Hashanah. Um, think about it. It is only a mere seven weeks till Rosh Hashanah. I don't want to put the fear of anything in you, but uh, seven weeks to Rosh Hashanah, eight and a half weeks to Yom Kippur. Um, we don't exactly have that much time to play with, but we certainly have time to be refocusing on the important thing. <laughs> excuse me, on the important things that we should be focusing on. Turning away from the misery, from the sadness, from the difficulties, from the speak of uh, destruction of uh, death of uh, all the problems and all the issues that unfortunately over thousands of years have haunted us um, during the period of the three weeks of the nine days and particularly on Tisha B'Av which was yesterday and here we come to this absolute transformation turnaround time it is about turning around Everything about making good on all the things that we hopefully focused on yesterday. You know, the bottom line of a fast day always has to be that it puts us in a frame of mind whereby we um, are ready for tshuva. That's why uh, Yom Kippur is Yom Kippur. It is a time when we are not focusing on the physical, on the material as much, but rather thinking about the spiritual. When it comes to Tisha B'Av, we've got the added dimension of the fact that there is so much that went wrong, so many things um, that we're sad about, so many things in our history that occurred on this day and on this date that made the day so difficult, so awesome, so um, horrible for us to even contemplate. And at the same time, um, a Jew is never allowed to be downhearted. We're never allowed to be sad. Uh, truly, we've got the instruction at all times to be besimcha, to be joyous, to be happy. And even when it comes to Tisha B'Av, there has to be that focus on the positivity. And therefore, we're promised that the day of Tisha B'Av will be turned around. It's going to be a day of joy, of happiness, of celebration. And in the future, it'll be one of the greatest festivals of all. But certainly, as we put it behind us and as we have gone through um, this period of time and we focused on the things that needed fixing, either within our own lives or within the lives of others, because, of course, we know that our temples were destroyed for a number of possible reasons, um, either our bad behavior or more likely and uh, more pronounced, of course, as you would have heard over the last 24, 48 hours, the difficulties of uh, wanton hatred, of uh, <coughs> showing differences between people and of um, just hating people or just disliking people or disregarding people for whatever 
um, unfounded reason there may be. The whole concept, the whole point is to redirect ourselves to say, well, that was um, something that brought difficulty, destruction, and um, all the problems and all the issues over those thousands of years. How do we now turn it around? How do we now focus our attention on showing a lot more love and care and affection for each other? How do we see that our relationships, whether they are formal or informal, whether they are part of a family or they're part of a business environment or they're part just of day-to-day living? How are we more cordial? How are we nicer to other people? And how do we turn around um, ourselves? Well, this is the opportunity. Here we have come out of this darkness and out of these difficult days. It is now the uh, morning after it's the in fact the afternoon after because we've passed the midway point and therefore all the rules and regulations that pertain to the nine days are now literally done and dusted they are gone we move on into a brand new period we call it the period of consolation we call it the period of comfort and here we go into this period of time and we're going to be back to talk with you a little bit more about this right after this this is Judaism 101.9 with Rabbi Michael Katz of Elovo. Hi, and welcome back. Yes, um, thinking about uh, turnaround time, thinking about things that change. Well, we do know that um, during the last three weeks on each Shabbat, we read a particular Haftorah, a particular um, passage from the scriptures, of course, that links with the Parsha of the week, but more importantly, each one of the last three weeks were words of admonition. They were words of warning. They came from our prophets, whether it was from Jeremiah or it was Isaiah. Um, the prophets were wagging the warning finger at um, each and every one of us, and particularly going back to the times of the difficulties and destructions of the first and the second Bate Migdash of those temples. And what were they telling us? They were telling us that um, because there was wanton idol worship, uh, the temple will be destroyed. Because people are misbehaving, you need to be careful. Um, this is going to bring difficulties from the north. Because of your hatred for each other, there is going to be all sorts of difficulty and destruction. But embedded within each and every one of them, there was a final word. And that final word was always one which instilled a little bit of hope. We now move from those three weeks of admonition and those three weeks of a finger wagging, if you wish, and a little bit of a telling off from the prophets, we now move to seven weeks of comfort. We are talking about now going to possibly on this coming Shabbat, one of the most well-known of all the Shabbat Haftorahs, the readings that are taken from the prophets, to a Haftorah, which is called Nachamu, Nachamu, Nachamu Ami. We talk about this Shabbat as being the Shabbat Nachamu. It is the Shabbos of comfort. And there is a double comfort. Nachamu, Nachamu Ami means comfort you, comfort you, my people. We're talking about double comfort. And in fact, we see that there were three weeks of admonition of finger wagging of of difficulty and now we go into literally a, a a double amount of time in fact it's more than double it is seven weeks of comfort there are seven weeks of consolation seven weeks where god says listen my children listen my people um you've been through these hardships you've been through these difficulties it's okay we're we're still around, we're here, and as long as we keep on track and we do what we need to do, there is going to be 
a beautiful, good times. There are going to be the wonders of um, a miraculous kind of a world that we hope and pray for when Mashiach will come. There is going to be light in the world. There is going to be an end to this darkness. There is going to be a complete and absolute and total transformation. And it all actually begins right now, this afternoon, as we leave these nine, ten days, as we go out of this period of time, we're now into the throes of comfort. People start literally to clean themselves up, to clean up our act, and perhaps that is one of the reasons why during this period of time we've refrained from um, washing and laundering and so on. We now get into the state of a cleanup. It's a cleanup inside, it's a cleanup outside, but most predominantly and most importantly, it's a cleanup of an atmosphere. The atmosphere changes. We are completely transformed and we go into a time of comfort. Well, we're told that there were actually seven consolations for Jerusalem and perhaps that is why it corresponds to the seven consolation haftorahs that we're talking about. And these seven consolations are mentioned and uh, we've spoken about at length when we talk about console, console my people. We actually say that the first consolation was the consolation of Avraham Avinu, of Abraham, who was asked to offer consolation for Jerusalem. The second consolation, sorry, the first consolation um, is of uh, God commanded the righteous to offer Jerusalem. Um, and the second is that of Avraham Avinu. The third is that of Yitzchak Avinu, of Isaac. The fourth is of Yaakov, of Jacob. The fifth is offered by Moshe Rabbeinu, by Moses. The sixth refers to Jerusalem's refusal to accept the consolation offered by the righteous and a pleas for other consolations instead. And the seventh is in which God himself offers, and he says in the verse, I, I am he who consoles you. So when we think about all of these um, writings in the Midrash and so on, we're talking about the fact that we're uh, looking at the center of Jewish life, of the Jewish world, we all know that on a daily basis, on a regular basis, we pray um, and everything we direct towards Yerushalayim, towards Jerusalem, in Jerusalem itself, towards the Temple Mount, of course, to the only remaining part of that temple in Jerusalem that stays there, our holy western wall, our holy kotel. We think about um, and we direct our prayers always in that direction because we know that that is the spot, that is the place where there was a Sulam Mutzav Arta, there was a ladder that was standing on the ground but reached up to heaven in the dream of Jacob. And each one of our forefathers and each one of the greats is asked to come and offer consolation to Jerusalem because Jerusalem... Being as it is at the center of our lives, at the center of everything Jewish from every point of view, our prayers, our, uh, you know, even when a couple gets married, we ask them to stand, whether they're getting married in a shul or they're in a garden, they stand facing towards Yerushalayim, towards Jerusalem. That is our center of being. It's our center of, um, of, of, of spirituality. It's our center of everything. We direct everything towards that end, towards that which is our heart and soul. And imagine then the um, pain and the anguish and the spiritual uproar and the spiritual difficulties that we go through with destruction, with the destruction of that place, of that space, on that temple mount that has been brought into. And I'm sure that that is why it was brought into focus again during these three weeks. It always does. It seems to be at that time that there is something that um, is bubbling up in the spiritual worlds which needs to come along and remind us, unfortunately and tragically, 
quickly with such difficult and horrible consequences. But then the whole dimension of these three weeks, nine days and Tisha B'Av is horrible and is difficult. We have um, the constant reminder of how important, and that's why I think it comes about, constant reminder of how important that place is to us. It is something that is of paramount importance to us. We cannot exist without it. It is our center of being, our center of gravity. Call it what you wish. There is nothing that could console us for the loss of those temples. There is nothing that can make good um, on the fact that the one temple is destroyed and the second one is destroyed and both of them on Tisha B'Av, 490 years apart, exactly on the same day. It is just too um, unbelievable to be to actually be able to comprehend. And then we come to the concept of consolation. So who can console? What kind of consolation would there be? This is not about saying, well, okay, you could have some other kind of a temple. You can suffice with your shuls. You can suffice with your schools. You can suffice with all of that. No, we can't. That temple is of such paramount importance that there was nothing and nobody, not even Abram, Isaac, Jacob, Moshe Rabbeinu, Moses, all the greats who came along, according to the Midrash, and were asked to provide consolation. There is only one who can pr- provide that consolation, and that is God himself. The same God who gave us the reassurance that we would get out of Egypt, the same God who gave us the reassurance that um, things would be good ultimately in uh, in our in our uh, difficulties that we went through, whether it was in Egypt or whether it was in Babylon or whether it was uh, later on in Persia and so on. That is the same God who has guaranteed that there will be the ultimate consolation, that the ultimate consolation is going to be the coming of Mashiach. There's going to be a time when this world will change fundamentally, where people will um, all be able to love each other, where there will be an absolute peace that will descend on the entire world. Could you imagine that God tells us, or says, Shalom Bim Romav, he says, you know, I'm the one who can make the peace up here in heavens, but in the heavens between the angels who represent um, two or many totally opposite dimensions, I can make that same kind of a peace down on earth. If you just give me the opportunity, if you give me the chance, if you just behave yourselves, if you just do what you have to do and what you put into this world to to do, I will be able to manufacture that peace. And don't worry, it's not far off. It's coming. And it's coming in the kind of blink of an eye as we transformed and as we're able to see this radical transformation that we went through from uh, Tisha B'Av to today where suddenly that veil is lifted and suddenly there is a feeling of something to look forward to. We will have that ultimate idea of what to look forward to um, because it is a promise that God has made to us. And although we could not accept from anybody else, we do accept that when Hashem says, when God says, there will be this consolation, the consolation will come, you will be consoled, you will have um, the ultimate, um, that Mashiach will come, that the temple will be rebuilt, that it will be there, fraught with all the problems as we see today, all of those things will be overturned because the Almighty himself has promised to do so. Be back with you right after this. This is Judaism 101.9 with Rabbi Michael Katz of Elovo. Okay, back with you and um, beautiful to be in your company. As we mentioned before, what a beautiful time it is, a beautiful day in this uh, radical transformation moment that we're sitting with right now where uh, things turn around, where things change, where hopefully the mood um, is lifted and everybody can now look forward to great and wonderful things that are on their way. Well, of course, there is such a great and wonderful day that comes up um, immediately after 
Tisha B'Av, or even after the 10th of Av, and that is, of course, the 15th of Av. On the 15th of Av, which is going to be Sunday night and Monday, it is a day that is termed, and it was called by no less a great than Rabbi Shimon Ben Gamliel, who said that this is a date, he says it in the Talmud, in Tainis, he says, there were no greater festivals for Israel than the 15th of Av and Yom Kippur. And these days, the daughters of Jerusalem would go out and dance in the vineyards, and what would they say? Young man, raise your eyes and see what you select for yourself. And the Talmud goes on to list several joyous events which occurred on the 15th day in the month of Av. So what happened? What are we talking about? Well, we do know that um, the period of the three weeks was a time when, strangely enough, one of the things that is taboo and that we didn't have and that we didn't celebrate during this period of time was Jewish weddings. Weddings were forbidden. No actual simcha of the building of a home. How can we? How can we have the concept of establishing a family and establishing a home when our home lies in ruins? It seems to be kind of... Uh, you know, lying on the bed that's burning type of an atmosphere. How can we be enjoying something that is as fundamental as the establishment of a Jewish home at the time that our temple lies in ruins? And so the 15th of Av <coughs> became known as this radical transformation time. It's a time where things are turned around, where it was turned around into a day of joy. Of celebration. And the Talmud mentions, therefore, that it was on this day that traditionally, in times gone by, in temple times, the daughters of Jerusalem would go out and they would dance in the vineyards. The women would go out and there would be a dance. Well, we've seen this in all sorts of cultures, the idea of a dance, but this wasn't dancing before a king who was then going to select a bride. This was um, the dance that was done for each and every one of them to be able to find their particular shidduch, to be able to find their match. The men were encouraged to come out and to take a look. We'll speak about this a little bit more in a few moments, but the men were encouraged to come and take a look and select their brides. And there were a, a number of amazing, wonderful traditions that we still keep today that come from this incredible time of the making of marriages and the concept of the making of the marriages was nothing um, like what we think today about a dating game or anything like that. But the mindset of establishing a home, of establishing a family, of being able to perpetuate the Torah and its instructions, the mitzvot and their instructions to impart those to our children, to be able to bring those into the next generation. This is really the fundamental of what this day was all about. Well, our temple does lie in ruins, but isn't one of the greatest consolations that we can possibly dream up or think about the establishment of good proper Jewish homes, the establishment of good proper education for our children and of making sure that the generations in the future will be able to carry that flag of Torah and mitzvot into the future. One of the other things um, that we have um, explored and that we understand happened on the 15th of Av, which as we mentioned is this coming Sunday evening and Monday, a very, very beautiful, positive energy day, is the fact that it marks the day on which the death of the 600,000 men who had to perish in the desert in the time when the Jewish people quit Egypt. And remember, they wandered in the desert for 40 years. And remember that um, Tisha B'Av played a role there as well because the spies came back. They brought a bad report. The people cried. They didn't want to go into Israel. 
God um, therefore said that that generation would have to die out in the desert. It took 40 years for that to happen. Well, amazingly, um, the Talmud tells us they all died on Tisha B'Av. They died on the 9th of Av, which was yesterday, the anniversary of the death of each and every one of the people who had to die out in the desert because of crying about Israel at the time of the spies. Um, they didn't all die in one year, you understand. They died over that period of the 40 years, approximately 15,000 who perished each year. Imagine that, 15,000 men who lay dead um, after each, at, at, on each Tisha B'Av. It was certainly a day of sadness and uh, despair at that time. Well, um, in the last year, think about what happened. Um, in the last year, um, the Jewish people had calculated that that was the ninth of Av, and amazingly nobody died. And they thought, well, there was a possibility that they'd miscalculated the date. You know, the moon at the time of the ninth or the tenth is not always that clear to be able, <coughs> excuse me, to be able to see the difference. So when it came to the tenth, nobody died. The eleventh, nobody died. The twelfth, nobody died. When it came to the fifteenth of the month, they took a look and they said, wow, this is unmistakable. The moon unmistakably is at its fullest. If the moon is at its fullest, it means we have passed through Certainly, definitely, we've passed through Tisha B'Av, the ninth of Av, and nobody has died, nobody has perished. And because of that, a great celebration broke out in the Jewish camp. Imagine that the people there understood that each and every one of them was going to cross the Jordan. Each and every one of them was going to inherit their place in Israel. This was a redemption day. It was radical transformation. Everything had been turned around. The things had changed. The um, despair, the dying, the death, the difficulties of the 40 years in the desert was over. And now they stood ready to enter the Holy Land. We're also told, by the way, that as long as members of the doomed generation were alive, God did not communicate with Moshe, with Moses, in a really affectionate manner. However, as soon as the last had perished, God now began to communicate with Moshe, and the date that is used for that reopening of that channel is the 15th of Av. The 15th of Av, this great day that occurs Sunday night and Monday. Now, there was also a time when, once again, and perhaps this will explain the daughters of uh, Jerusalem dancing in the fields, there was a time when uh, the tribes of Israel were forbidden to intermarry. And that means that we're in, intermarriage between each tribe was not permitted. Now, this had come about because of a difficulty over land claims. Think of what kind of confusion the um, different tribes inheriting different land um, had on the Jewish people when there was intermarriage between the tribes. And if, as we know, at the end of uh, the book of um, Bamidbar that we read um, a couple of weeks ago that at that moment, at that time that the daughters of Tzlovchad came forward and they put forward their claim and Moshe, Moses um, refers it on high and the claim was that what would happen or what does happen if a man dies without sons, without male heirs, without brothers and so on who inherits from him if women inherit and that was then of course permitted if women inherit the land what happens when they and if they marry somebody from another tribe um, 
And where does the land go? And does it return after the Yeovil year? Is there any kind of restitution? Is there kind of any kind of um, of um, land claim? How can one tribe own land in another tribe? Well, they found great difficulty in sorting out all these land claim issues. Well, nothing new, I suppose. It has been going on for thousands of years that we have difficulty everywhere in sorting out land claims. Yeah, they had that difficulty there too. Well, God said, simple. And the rabbis chose a simple remedy. Don't permit intermarriage between the tribes. If you are only allowed to marry within your tribe, well, we won't have these problems. But they were giving us a deeper message. If we can't sort out our physical, material um, issues, if we can't sort out the financial things, please don't build homes based on um, this kind of uh, quandary or this kind of argument or the quarrels uh, that um, have been because they're only going to ensue and the marriages and the homes are going to be set up on a very, very unstable kind of a, a foundation. So don't do that. And they, in fact, made a decree. So the decree was that um, marriage should not take place between the tribes. It was incredibly limiting. You only have to talk to a young person today who's looking for a shidduch, who's trying to find a marriage partner. Imagine if that was multiplied by 12. It was made 12 times more difficult. You could only marry within your tribe. The options were very, very limited. Maybe you didn't like the look of the guys in your tribe um, or whatever it was. And here you couldn't marry within the tribe. So um, they... I made this for the generation that was unable to deal with it, and eventually this ordinance was lifted. It was lifted, and it was decided on the 15th of Av. It was decided that this should be lifted, and therefore it was considered as a great, great opportunity for a tremendous amount of celebration because, once again, marriages were permitted. And therefore it stands to reason that if the women went out and they danced in the fields, that this was a day for reinstituting, for rekindling the bonds and the necessities of what a life, what a home, what a Jewish marriage is truly all about. There was also a time when the tribe of Benjamin was excommunicated. The tribe of Binyamin was um, <coughs> excommunicated. We understand that this probably happened round about 1228 to 1188 um, uh, before the Common Era. So uh, we're talking about 3,000 years ago that there was a terrible incident that happened about the concubine of Giva. It is uh, mentioned in the book of Judges. Um, in, and uh, there was this awful story about a woman who was abused it happened to be um, that all fingers pointed towards the tri- men of the tribe of Benjamin. And uh, the sages of the day said, well, if men can behave in such a despicable fashion towards one woman, let's note, if one woman is abused um, and there is a suspicion that it was a group of men from the tribe of Benjamin, well, the rabbi said, we can't permit the rest of Israel to marry into that tribe. These are bad guys. These are guys who don't know how to respect women. These are guys who don't know how to respect uh, the sanctity of uh, other human beings and therefore they took away the privilege of being able to marry from the tribe of Benjamin into any other tribes. That once again lasted for a generation and the sages chose to lift that as well on the 15th of Av. It became a date therefore of lifting of these difficulties. Now, amazingly then also, Hosea ben Ella opened the roads to Jerusalem. Now, this all happened 
Um, when the division of the Holy Land was divided into two kingdoms following the death of King Solomon in the year 2964 from creation. In other words, 797 before the common era, 700 years, 790 years before the um, accounting of the common era. Yeravim ben Navat, the ruler of the breakaway northern kingdom of Israel, actually set up roadblocks to prevent his citizens from making the three yearly pilgrimage to the Holy Temple in Jerusalem for the pilgrim festivals for Pesach, Shavuot, and Sukkot. Imagine that a, a Jewish king who set up roadblocks wouldn't in, enable his people to pass through and get down and go to Yerushalayim, Irakodesh, the capital of the southern kingdom of Yehuda. So much was the animosity between the north and the south. <clears throat> now, these stood amazingly for 200 years. And for 200 years, there were these roadblocks. The people from the north could not come to Jerusalem to offer in the temple. What an awesome and difficult and harsh event that was. But then Hosea ben Ella, who was um, the last king of the northern kingdom, lifted those roadblocks in the year 574 before the common era, in the year 3187 of our um, counting on the 15th of Av. So roadblocks being removed, barriers being removed to marriage, um, the barrier of the Jewish people getting into Israel originally being removed. It's all one theme, if you think about it. And there was another couple of important um, events that happened on the 15th of Av. But stay tuned and we'll be back with them right after this. This is Judaism 101.9 with Rabbi Michael Katz of Elovo. Hi, great to be back with you. And we're talking about the 15th of Av, the upcoming beautiful, beautiful festival, although it's not that uh, widely known or celebrated in any meaningful kind of a way, except for the fact that if you take a look in your Siddur, it tells you that on this day, which is Sunday night and Monday, we do not say Tachanun. There are no penitential prayers. It is a day, however, of what I've been terming this radical transformation. As we move from the darkness into the light, this is a day on which all these barriers are lifted. We spoke about a few important barriers that were lifted when it came to marriage, when it came to the dying of the Jews in the desert, when it came to um, the removal um, of the barriers that prevented the people from the north coming to the south and being able to um, go into and uh, celebrate in the Beit HaMignash, in the temple of old, for a couple of hundred years. And then there was a terrible incident that happened, um, and that was to do with a place called Beit the fortress of Beitar was the last holdout of the Bar Kokhba uh, rebellion. Now we know that this was something that happened post Second Temple, time of Rabbi Akiva. Remember, Rabbi Akiva viewed and thought that Bar Kokhba was the uh, Mashiach. He could have been a Mashiach candidate. And then when Beitar fell, which was on the 9th of Av, by the way, um, yesterday was the anniversary of the falling of Beitar um, in 3893 or 133 of the common era, in other words, um, just under 2,000 years ago, Bar Kokhba and many thousands of Jews were killed. The Romans massacred the survivors of the battle with great cruelty and would not even allow the Jews to bury their dead. They wouldn't enable it, so there was a pile of the bodies lying um, after this terrible, terrible event. And when the dead of Beitar were finally brought to burial, which was in the year 148, of the common era. Just remember that that then was a full 15 years later. 15 years later, on the 15th of Av, you guessed it, it was on that day, which is coming up on Monday, 
um, the dead were allowed to be buried. So they lay there for 15 years. The Romans' cruelty was such that we remember and we know how important it is from a Jewish point of view to bring somebody to burial. We ensure that it's done immediately. We understand how difficult, how harsh it is, not only for the deceased, but for the families, for the people who are mourning for them, not to have a decent um, human Humane burial um, The dead were finally allowed to be buried And they were brought to burial 15 years later On um, the 15th of Av um, On this day And it was then that an additional blessing Which is Hatov Vahametiv Was actually added to the grace of the meals In commemoration of that event It was so important and so essential And so empirical to um, All of Judaism That it was added in to our Birkat Amazon, to our benching, that we say, Hatov HaMetiv, how good is God, um, who allows us to um, do and to perform his mitzvot. One final thing that we're going to mention is that uh, the day of the breaking of the axe um, was also the 15th of Av. What was this all about? Well, when the Holy Temple stood in Jerusalem, the annual cutting of firewood for the altar was actually concluded on the 15th of Av. Um, the event was celebrated with feasting and rejoicing um, and included a ceremonial breaking of the axes, which gave the day its name. Well, basically what we're talking about there is that the wood had to be cut. It had to be checked. Um, it was very important uh, that the wood was of exactly the right uh, type and caliber. And because the 15th of Av um, is kind of uh, the absolute midsummer point in Israel, it usually occurs around that time. Well, here, of course, we're talking about the opposite hemisphere. So it's midwinter in Israel, midsummer. It was at that time that they actually stopped the cutting of the wood. Cutting wood um, was stopped on the 15th of Av. Why? Because the wood would then lie outside and the weather wasn't quite right for it to dry sufficiently and uh, be able to be used in the Beit HaMikdash. So the wood stopped, they stopped the cutting of the wood on the 15th of Av, but instead of it being a stopping of, um, and, and therefore something negative, it was regarded as a great time of celebration. In other words, the wood had been prepared for use in the altar, for use in the Beit HaMikdash, for use in the temple, and now at that moment, at that time, um, they ceased with the cutting of the wood. At that time, they went through a ceremony, which I guess gave rise to the concept of burying the hatchet. Um, what they did was they broke the axes. The axes were no longer there. Um, in other words, axes, you know, the idea of leaving weapons lying around, of having anything that could be dangerous, I guess, comes into play here. But it was the idea of something that could be harmful, that could be hurtful, that could be damaging. Um, it is important to understand that in a spiritual sense, there was this idea of burying the hatchet, of getting rid of those axes, of taking away anything that could be harmful, that could be difficult. And of course, once again, of repairing our interpersonal relationships, the relationships that we have with each other. And therefore, of course, the ideal time for marriages, for homes, for um, uh, the beautiful concepts of building for the future and the idea of this absolute consolation that actually comes about um, with the 15th of Av, with this great day that we will celebrate, that we will have um, coming up on Sunday night and on Monday. Be back with you after this short break. This is Judaism 101.9 with Rabbi Michael Katz of Elovo. 
Now, in and amongst some of the things that we have spoken about for the upcoming 15th of Av and the turnaround time and marriages and so on, there are beautiful and incredible descriptions of um, what actually happened when these daughters of Jerusalem went out and danced and what they actually did. Well, um, you may know that um, they traditionally wore white. Well, isn't that something that we know, that most brides wear white clothing? Why is a sign of their virtue, as a sign of their um, their pristine um, state as they went out there to dance in the fields, that they were pure, that they were wonderful? When we think about another um, a little tradition that you have, you know, um, and we sometimes think of it as being a bit of a Boba Misa, is um, the idea of wearing something borrowed. Well, you know that the maidens went out to dance invariably would borrow dresses from each other so that the rich ones would not be identified by their uh, rich garments and the poor ones would not be identified by theirs. They would, in fact, in fact, swap over and so that the men coming to choose their brides would not be confused um, at all by the idea that somebody may look wonderful just because they're dressed in a, a beautiful, rich, um, and expensive material. Um, so we talk about wearing something borrowed. There was um, a number of different ideas and ideals that are taken from uh, these daughters who would go out to dance in the vineyards. But the Talmud gives us perhaps the most important, and that it says, um, what would the beautiful ones amongst them say? They would say, look for beauty, for a woman is for beauty. What would those of prestigious, prestigious lineage say? They would say, look for family, for a woman is for children. What would the ugly ones say? They would say, make your acquisition for the sake of heaven, as long as you decorate us with jewels. Well, um, there are so many beautiful ways that we could look at these statements. Of course, um, a beautiful person thinks that beauty is everything. Of course, someone who comes from lineage thinks that it, that is everything. But perhaps here yeah, we're talking about something much more important um, than that. We're talking about ultimately the marriage between God and his people. And in fact, when we think about God and the Jewish people, there are all sorts of different categories. There are beautiful souls. There are people with prestigious lineage and they could perhaps even be those who we would term to be ugly. Um, but they all contribute to the most incredible and beautiful relationship with God. Um, when we talk about uh, the love that needed to exist, there needed to be a love that existed that transcended um, all of these uh, definitions, that in fact we are taught that the same way as God accepts us kind of warts and all and looks for the redeeming factors within each and every one of us. This is a message here too that we need to remember, to look for the redeeming factors within each and every person and there will always be those redeeming factors. Nobody is beyond repair and nobody ultimately is ugly, God forbid and therefore has to be ostracized pushed out or disparaged in any kind of a way. So we're talking about beautiful turnaround time. We're talking about the time now um, leading up all the way to Rosh Hashanah it begins today. It begins with a complete change in atmosphere, a complete transformation, a complete, complete um, a setting aside of all the darkness, of all the hopelessness, of all the despair 
that we have unfortunately had to go through over the last three weeks, nine days, and then um, on Tisha B'Av itself. And now we are drawing back the curtains and revealing a brand new day. We're revealing brand new light, and we're revealing a great, great time ahead. So I want to wish you a great uh, rest of the week, a great Shabbat up ahead, a great 15th of Av, Tuba Av, Chamish Asa B'Av, which occurs on Sunday night and Monday. Hope you've been able to learn a little bit um, from this session here today. I look forward to being back with you again next week, same time, same place, on Judaism 101.9.